This is God's holy and inerrant word. Psalm 78, beginning in verse 1. O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. But we have heard and known what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power, and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. And then verse 10, they did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by His law. They forgot what He had done, the wonders He had shown them. He did miracles in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the region of Zoan. And then skip down to verse 32. In spite of all this, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. So he ended their days in futility and their years in terror. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again. They remembered that God was their rock, that God most high was their redeemer. But then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. And then one more section, beginning in verse 42. They did not remember his power. The day he redeemed them from the oppressor, the day he displayed his miraculous signs in Egypt, his wonders in the region of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood. They could not drink from their streams. He sent swarms of flies that devoured them and frogs that devastated them. An interesting place to end, but that is where we will end. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Almighty God, we come before you to ask for your help as we look at your word We ask for your help because this is your word. And it's not the words of men that we need to hear this morning. We need to hear your voice, the voice of the one who calls into being all that there is, the voice of the one who wakes the dead, the voice of the one who brings life where there is death. Father, we need to hear your voice this morning. As we gather before your word, we recognize that many come this morning exhausted, walk through these doors tired because of the trials that they have been facing all the past week, the difficult circumstances your providence has placed them in. And they need encouragement. Still others come this morning and they are finding themselves to be full of doubts. 
doubts perhaps about the truth of your word, doubts certainly about your goodness and what they see in the world around them, even in themselves. And they need to have your truth pressed upon their hearts. They need to have your truth to change them, to give them a vision of your glory and grace extended to us in Jesus. And still some come this morning anxious, anxious not so much about the week before, but about the week that lies ahead of them, worried about what will happen and what could happen. And we pray that they would find comfort this morning in your power, in the knowledge of your sovereignty and your good care of your people. Still there are those who come this morning who are excited to be here, excited to be with your people, excited to be before your word now for they feel as though they are walking very closely with you right now. For that we give thanks. For all of us, we need to hear your voice. We need to hear you calling us to repentance and faith. We need to hear you revealing to us our depravity and our sinfulness. But we also need you to take us to your son Jesus. To show us that because of him, it can be true of us that we are at the same time sinful, but in him, spotless and righteous. That we are far more sinful than we could ever really imagine. We cannot plumb the depths of our depravity. And we need to know that. But we also need to know this morning that because of Jesus, because of what he did for us, we are far more loved and far more secure than we have ever dreamed possible. We cannot plumb the depths of our depravity. We also cannot plumb the depths of your grace and your mercy to your people in Jesus. So we pray that you would help us to see him, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You know, the words, uh, once upon a time, those were uh, favorite words of mine when I was a, a child because when you hear those words, you know that a story is about to follow. And and I just love good stories, and my kids love them too. And, you know, I love to read them stories. I love to tell them stories. I love having Kennedy and William crawl into my lap, you know, and they'll hand me a book and they'll ask me to read them a story. I love that. Um, Caroline will be invited into that inner circle too when she stops eating pages of books. But, uh, you know, here's something that, I, that I've thought about a pretty good bit. You know, I, I grew up, but I never really grew out of my love for stories, and, and I suspect that I never will grow out of that love for stories. You know, I, I can... I almost find myself in a, in a trance when I'm listening to, to a really good story. For instance, some of you know uh, Garrison Keeler, and uh, for those of you who know who he is, you know that he, he really can tell 
great stories. He tells some of the best stories. And, and as you listen to him tell, tell these stories, you find yourself really absorbed into the story and seeing what he describes and, and feeling what he explains and, and really experiencing the story. You know, I love to hear my grandparents' generation tell stories. And, you know, when we I do a hunting trip every year with a few friends, and I love when we go hunting, and I love the way we swap stories. And not all of those stories are true. A lot of them are fiction. But it's fun to tell those stories and to hear those stories. There's something about good stories that we never tire of. And we especially never tire of hearing really good stories. I mean, because those are the stories we, we tell each other. Tell me that story again, you know, or I know I've told you this before. We love the good stories. Why do you think that is? I think perhaps it's because God made us that way. I mean, instead of, you know, God, instead of revealing himself to us with a PowerPoint presentation, you know, full of little bullet points, you know, and cool graphics, he gave to us a bunch of stories, um, action stories and love stories and stories with conflict and stories of defeat and stories of victory and stories of failure. Those are the stories that make up much of God's revelation. And that is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. How he's chosen to teach us who we are and what we are, what he requires of, of us. He, he's taught us that through stories. It's, he's used stories to teach us what we are to believe about him. We were, I guess what I'm saying is we were built for stories. That's why we love them so much. If you notice those first three verses of Psalm 78, this, the author of this Psalm, Asaph, he tells us to pay attention because he has a story to tell. He says, Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. He, see, he says, I have a story to tell. It, it, it's a parable, and it's a story that's supposed to teach us something. But it isn't a new story, is it? It's one he's saying that we have heard before. It's one of those good stories that you are to never grow tired of hearing. It's one of those stories that you could hear over and over again. So what is this good story that he tells us? I think it is a story of God's work and a story of our response. And those are our two points this morning. First, the story of God's work. In verse 4, he tells us that there is a story that we are supposed to tell to our children. It is a story that is supposed to be told to the next generation. It's a story that's to be handed down. It's to be told and retold again and again. And here's what he says. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. You see, what is this good story? First, it is a story of God's work. That is what we need to hear from Psalm 78. We need to hear the story of God's amazing work. And this story of God's work is, first of all, all about his power. Notice how he tells you about God's power. He reminds the people of God's power in Egypt. And you remember the story, right, of this little nation, Israel, that finds themselves enslaved in Egypt. They were slaves and they were oppressed and they were treated cruelly. And what happened to them in their slavery? What happened was that God showed up. And when he showed up, he showed up full of power. He reminds them of the plagues in verses 43 through 51. We didn't read all of those verses, but he, you know, he's, he's reminding them. God turned rivers into blood. 
You know, he, he sent swarms of flies and grasshoppers, he, hail and bolts of lightning that destroyed their cattle, even struck down the firstborn of all of Egypt. And he reminds them in verse 13 of how God parted the Red Sea and he made the sea, he made the water stand up like walls. And what's the point of all of that? So that you would see that God showed up in his power when his people were in slavery. He didn't leave them in their shackles, but he came in power. But you might remember that the story of Israel, it doesn't end there. They left Egypt and then they found themselves wandering in the wilderness. Where was God then? Where was God in the wilderness? I'm sure many of the Israelites were asking that question. Again, the writer of this psalm tells us God displayed his power in the wilderness. He reminds us about how God made water come out of rocks when they were thirsty in verses 15 through 16. He reminds us how God miraculously gave these people bread and quail to eat in the wilderness in verses 23 through 29. They simply woke up in the morning and found that God in his power had provided for them. Bread and meat they didn't work for, water in a dry wilderness. But you remember their story. It goes on from there. Israel was released from slavery in Egypt. They were provided for in the wilderness. But then they went into the promised land, right? But by now it should not surprise us what happened in the promised land. Notice what happened in verse 55. It says this, He that is God drove out nations before them and allotted their lands to them as an inheritance. He settled the tribes of Israel in their homes. Coming into the promised land, you see they faced more enemies. And God showed up again in his power and drove their enemies out. He showed up in his power and gave homes to this wandering nation, Israel. Now, I know that right now it, it sound, this sounds more like a history lesson than anything else. But I want you to think about why these are the stories to be told and told and told again and again. Could it be to show you and me and to remind us that God shows up and he works in his power for the weak and the oppressed? Could it be so that you and I would see and be reminded that there is nothing that our God cannot handle? Could it be so that in the day-to-day stuff of your life that seems so pointless and monotonous and boring all the time, Waking up, going to work, hanging out with friends, feeding the kids, paying the bills, those kind of things. So that in those things that seem so unspectacular, if that's a word, I don't even know if it is. But could it be so that in that stuff, you wouldn't be tempted to forget that God works and he is powerful. God's enemies, our enemies, shortage of food, none of it is a problem for him. Over and over in this psalm, Asaph is saying, do you see what God has done in your history? And what I'm telling you this morning is that this is not just the nation of Israel's history. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is your history to be told and retold. By his hand, rocks give water, rivers turn to blood, and he takes his people into the promised land. You know, in one sense, to hear of God's power, to hear of his power, I think it appropriately could frighten us. But what Asaph is saying in this psalm is he's saying, you need to see that God uses his power on behalf of his people and for their good. You know, while while I was in a seminary, I think I may have shared this uh, with you before, but I had the opportunity... Uh, to work in this church as a youth director. And I worked with all the kids 
ages 1 through 12. And, you know, it, the junior high kids, they're always the most fun to watch because, you know, they're, they're awkward and, you know, they're learning how to relate to one another and all that kind of stuff. And most of the time, they're just making an absolute mess of it. And so it, it's quite entertaining to sit back and watch. Um, it's a little humbling when you realize you were in junior high at one time, too. But anyway, it seemed like every time these kids got together for, uh, for an event, you know, or for a lock-in or something like that, the guys would migrate to a corner of the room, and, you know, it was very segregated, uh, guys over here, girls over here, and the guys, when they got together, arm wrestling competitions would constantly break out, and, um, and, and the girls who were, by that time, much more mature, that you know, they would roll their eyes uh, at, at all this activity, but, you know, they would look at the, these guys having this arm wrestling competition, they would roll their eyes as if to say, who cares? I mean, who cares if you can beat someone in an arm wrestling competition? And what I want you to be impressed with here is that God is not like a junior high kid. He never flexes his muscles just for show. In his power, people are delivered. The story of God's work is about his power, but it's also about deliverance. I mean, what's the big deal about the parting of the Red Sea and sending a plague of frogs and all those other things? Well, the big deal is that these people were slaves and Pharaoh did not want to let them go. And God used his power to break the shackles of slavery. It was God who in his power brought them out of that land. Verse 52, but he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the desert. It was God who showed up and he said, you cannot have my people. Delivered from slavery, they find themselves in the wilderness. And, and you, you can hear the nation asking, you know, well, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Uh, how are we going to survive? And it's in the wilderness that God delivers. He splits open the rocks and their thirst is quenched. He rains down food from heaven to quiet their grumbling stomachs. And he provides for his people. In his power, he delivers. And entering into the promised land, they didn't find peace. They found new enemies, a land of danger and giants and massive armies. And God shows up and he drives their enemies out before them and gives them this land. God shows up in his power and when he does, he delivers. That is what the story of God's work is all about. So here we are in the year 2010 and we live in West Tennessee. And you're asking, or you should be asking, what does this have to do with me? Because I live in Germantown. I live in Collierville, and uh, I'm definitely not in Egypt, um, and I have plenty of food, and I'm not even sure if I have any real enemies out there or not. But I want to suggest to you that this story has not changed, and that's why we are to tell it again and again. The Bible describes us as a people who are born into a slavery of sin. The Bible describes us as a people who are starving and dependent on Jesus to feed us in the wilderness. The Bible describes us as a people with enemies, both seen and unseen. And what this God does is he shows up and he delivers his people in his power. Think with me about the story of the cross for just a moment. It is the story of God's work. And the cross, the cross is a story of power and deliverance. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved or delivered, it is the power of God. The cross, at first glance, Paul is saying, it might look like weakness, 
But it is the power of God bringing deliverance. A story of Him breaking the shackles of sin that hold us in slavery. A story of Him inviting us to feed on Him, to feast on Him and be nourished in Him. A story of Him taking us into the promised land. Now, I'm going to illustrate all this just with one very simple quote. An author named Walker Percy, he once wrote an article, and in that article he said this, Bad books lie. And then he said this, "They, They lie most of all about the human condition. And he goes on in that article to explain that this is why you will never read a good Buddhist or a good Marxist or a good Freudian novel. They just don't exist because they lie about the human condition. And it isn't the stuff of which good stories are made. Now, the writer of this song, he doesn't tell you to tell your children how great you are. That, that, would have been, that would be a lie about the human condition. It would be a lie about who you are. And it would not be the makings of a good story. He doesn't say, tell your children, tell them how you pulled yourselves up by your bootstraps and became the most moral, conservative person around. That would have been a lie. It would not have been the story of the gospel. It is the truth that makes the best story. And this is the truth. And this is what Asaph is saying. We were slaves. Tell your children you were slaves. You were weak and powerless. And God showed up and he delivered you through his mighty power. You see, what my children need to know, they do not need to know that mommy and daddy have it all together and so they better get their act together too. Although I do fear that that is the way most Christian children children who grow up in, in Christian homes are basically reared. What they need instead is to know clearly we were slaves and our only hope in this life is the story of God's work of redemption through Jesus. But it's not just what the next generation needs to hear. It's what you need to hear and be reminded of. And it's what I need to hear. You see, there is this pressure in our circles, I think, to never show weakness, to pretend that we never fail, to prove that we have overcome besetting sins as easily as someone overcomes the flu or a cold. Are you trying to live in a story? This is my question. Are you trying to live in a story where you are your own Savior? If if you are, I'm telling you, it will never sell. Bad books lie. The question is, have you come to trust the greatest story ever told, that there is a Redeemer, and it is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ? Now, there's one more point to this sermon, and it's the story of our response to God's work. Because, you see, these two stories, they go hand in hand together. Um, And that's exactly how the writer of this psalm sees it. We aren't only to tell the next generation the story of God's work. We are also to tell them, he says, about God's commands. Verse 5, he decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. Now listen, there are two groups of people according to this psalm. There are those who remember the story of God's work and obey. And there are those who forget the story of God's work and disobey. Let's take the story of disobedience first. You know, when I read verse 4, I thought, why would this guy tell these people not to hide these stories? That's what he says. 
In other words, I find myself thinking, why would anyone want to hide these stories that he's telling? And then I imagine sitting down and telling my kids, you know, we never told you about your great-great-great-grandfather, right? He was a slave in Egypt. And God showed up and he sent these plagues and he walked them out through the Red Sea and he delivered them and all that kind of stuff. It's the makings of a good story right there. But then the story goes on. And then your great-great-great-grandfather, you know, he forgot what God had done. And he rebelled. And so God struck him down in the wilderness. All of a sudden it becomes not so flattering a family tree uh, at that point. It almost seems like a story you might want to hide. But Asaph's point is that that is exactly the story that we need to hear. Do not forget like your great, great, great whatever grandfather. When we think about disobedience in this psalm, forgetting is always tied to it. Just look at a few verses in the psalm. Verses 10 through 11 we read, They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. Verse 32, in spite of all this, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. Verses 41 and 42, again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. And connected to it, they did not remember his power the day he redeemed them from the oppressor. Over and over again, they forgot. And when they forgot, it led to rebellion and disobedience. You know, sometimes I think we want to point our finger at all these people in the Old Testament, you know. How could you forget? You saw the rivers stand up like walls. You saw the rivers turn to blood and all all these kind of things. God drove out your enemies. How could you possibly forget? But you and I share their same DNA. Um, One of my favorite songs is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And I think it's because of one line in that song. It absolutely resonates with me. It goes like this. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wonder. To leave the God I love. The warning in this psalm is that we would not forget because we are prone to forget. Because we are prone to wander away from this story. And because forgetting always leads to serious disobedience, there is some strong language in this psalm. They refuse to live by his law. They rebelled. They put God to the test. It is a serious, serious thing this author is telling us. To forget the story of God's work because it always leads you down a path of disobedience and rebellion. Not long after Jennifer and I were first married, one one Saturday, I was uh, out working around the house. I was outside doing the yard work and everything, and Jennifer was inside cleaning the house. And I had finished up, and I was coming in, into the house, and Jennifer met me at the front door. Um, and uh, she said, all that she said was, do you love me? And I said, yes, of course I love you. And uh, without skipping a beat, without hesitating, she just said, no, do you love me? And I started to get a little nervous because, um, you know, we had been premarital counseling and everything, but it had not prepared me for this situation because I was pretty sure that there was only one right answer to that question, but I was getting it asked repeatedly, you know. And uh, so I just said, well, of course I love you. And, um, And she said... Well, then look at this house, and if you love me, you will keep it clean. Um, And uh, I I think what she was saying was she was saying, you have a problem with forgetfulness. And you forget very easily all that I do for you. 
and all that I do for this house. And when I forget, the house gets messy. And it's a silly illustration, I know, but hopefully you get the point. Forgetting, forgetting leads to trouble, whether it's in the house or in your life. Forgetting always leads to trouble. Forgetting the story of God's work, it leads you down a path of rebellion. Now, on the other side of this forgetting, there's remembering and obeying. Teach your children God's deeds and His commands so that they won't forget and so that they will obey. Teach them the story of God's work and His commands so that they will find grace and mercy moving them to obedience. And I think this is exactly what the writer is getting at. Remembering God's work, it is the proper motivation to holiness, to righteousness, to humility. In verse 7 he says it plainly. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Let me remind you of a familiar passage in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes this, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He's saying it is in view of God's work, in view of that story, in view of His mercy, in view of the story where He came and He freed you from slavery, in view of that story where He calls you to feast on His Son, and in view of that story where He's taking you to the promised land, in view of that, offer your bodies as living sacrifices and obey. You know, there's a strange view among Christians, and that is this idea that the gospel is really for non-Christians. Um, And once we become Christians, we feel like, well, now we move on to more advanced things. And certainly we want our unbelieving friends to see their need of the gospel and trust in Jesus. But I want you to understand that the goal of the Christian life isn't to go past the cross onto more advanced things, but to go deeper and deeper into the cross, to be reminded again and again and again of God's work in Jesus so that you would find your rest there and so that you would be motivated to obey Him. You see, it's the story of the gospel that takes hard hearts and causes them to love. And loving God is simply this, obeying His commands. Remembering leads to obedience. Let me try and illustrate this with something that we do once a month here at St. Andrew's. We take the Lord's Supper. First Sunday of every month, we take the Lord's Supper. And when we come to the Lord's Supper and we take the wine and we take the bread, we quote the words of Jesus. And each time, do you know what he says? He says this, do this in remembrance of me. It is no accident that Jesus uses those words. Remembering the story of God's work in Jesus, it is necessary to living the Christian life. No one comes to the Lord's Supper because they've got it all together. You come to the Lord's Supper to be reminded that you are slaves. That's what you do. You come to the table and you say, I was a slave. And his body was broken. His blood was spilled to rescue me from that slavery. Remembering the story is what leads you to obedience. Let me close with one last thing. Love does strange things to people. We all know that. Um, I used to get to see it all the time on a weekly basis when I worked on the college campus. A lot of, a lot of love going on out there. Uh, 
you know, a, a couple starts dating and, uh, and, and all of a sudden they start to change and they start to look not like themselves. You know, sometimes guys, they start becoming more responsible when they're in love. You know, it's strange because we're like, that's not you. We don't know you. We don't recognize you. You know, they do strange things like clean their rooms regularly because she might stop by. You know, they, uh, you know, they start getting their homework done early because they want to go out on Friday night or Thursday night or whenever it is. Girls start getting just a little bit more dressed up just to go to class. I mean, stuff like that, people start changing, right? Sometimes love will make you do things that just seem so out of character. You know, I, I think I told you this before, but I knew I was going to marry Jennifer when one day on my way home from uh, seminary, I, I pulled off Interstate 55 and started picking some of her favorite flowers. And if you know me, you know that I am not a flower-picking kind of guy. I mean, some of you men may be, and if you are, that's fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but it's definitely not me. And here I am on the interstate, and cars are flying by at 70-plus miles per hour, and I'm picking flowers. I mean, love sometimes causes you to act out of character. To love God is to obey Him. And I guess what I'm saying is this. It is acting out of character for sinful people to obey. So how do you begin to properly act out of character and see real change in your life? How do you go about finding the proper motivation for obedience? You learn to love God by understanding and remembering the story of His work. That He first loved you. That the story of his work is a story of power and deliverance for people who don't deserve it. And it goes hand in hand with the story of our response. Forgetting, you forget what God has done. You try to go past the cross instead of deeper into it. And you are going down a path of rebellion. But remembering this story is the very thing that leads to our obedience. To real and deep transformation. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask that you would be kind to us and that you would not let us forget the story of your power and your deliverance for your people. We are so prone to walk away from that story to forget it, to seek to go past the cross instead of deeper into it. And we pray that you would not let us do that. We pray that you would use whatever means necessary to keep us there at the foot of the cross and that you would change us, that you would make us into a people who properly begin to act out of character with their sinful natures who are moved to obedience out of gratitude for all that you have done. Father, we pray for members of this congregation, those who are facing trouble in their lives with sickness, with difficulty in employment, with the hardship of caring for loved ones who find themselves ill. We pray that you would give them grace and mercy that even in their time of service, 
you would be reminding them of the story of your power and deliverance, and it would serve to move them on to greater and greater service of those they love. Father, we do pray for Joyce Herring as she recovers from her surgery. Pray for that entire family. This hard news of cancer is difficult to take. Thank you for the way in which they have shown many how they have received your providence with faithfulness. But we do pray for her quick recovery and full recovery, that she would be completely restored in her health and to her family. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.